Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. We started last week's episode saying depression is not a casserole illness. It is also not a measles illness meaning you don't experience depression a single time and develop a lifetime immunity to it, unfortunately. Hmm. While some people have one epic episode and never get deeply stuck in the dark pit again, many of us have numerous episodes, often varying in degrees. Still others, with treatment-resistant versions, feel they never come fully out of it. Today's guest is author Douglas Block, who believes that relapse prevention is a critical part of recovery from depression. He says what he calls depressive breakdowns don't occur overnight. Quoting from an article he wrote on the topic, clinical depression is a gradual process of falling out of recovery, ultimately leading to the inability to function. By regularly monitoring the state of your body, mind, and spirit, it is possible to identify relapse symptoms early on and take action to prevent a return to major depression. Douglas says that process starts with identifying our relapse triggers, including stress, loss, and past traumatic events. Here is Douglas talking by phone with Terry, giving his voice to depression. So I'd like to start at the very, very beginning, Douglas, and ask you about the word relapse, because I think it's one not a lot of people associate with depression. Right. Well, the, the first time I ever heard of relapse was um, <clears throat> in terms of addiction. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, something I've never had to struggle with, but I've had friends who've gone to AA, and I actually took a two-year course in becoming a drug and alcohol counselor. So relapse, you know, the, the phrase that they use is relapse is a part of recovery. So I started thinking of relapse when I read this quotation by Andrew Solomon, He says, depression is recurring and cyclic. What we have is treatments, not cures. You're never really free of it. You're always living in the shadow of it. You always have to be prepared for a recurrence and be ready to stave it off. A great quote, but a really tough reality. We have treatments, but not cures, and we are always living in depression's shadow. Well, that has happened to me on so many occasions. I mean, the biggest one was in 82, 83, where I was so bad off I had to go back to New York and live with my parents for nine months. Right now, you, you know, millennials live with their parents, but back then, if you're 33 and living with your parents, you're, you're considered a real loser. It doesn't really help your self-esteem. So when I finally, you know, got back to Oregon, got into social work school, then got married, then bought a house, I said, my God, this is, you know, this is the resurrection of the Phoenix. Nothing can go wrong now until 16 years later when it did. I was shocked that I had a relapse or had this return to me. And so finally when I got out, I I realized that uh, when I recovered, I realized that this is something you you cannot assume that after you've gone through an episode that it will not happen again. You have to basically practice preventative medicine. 
And we will talk about that. But I think we should also say that we shouldn't be living in fear either, right? You can't be looking over your shoulder all the time. Well, that's, a, that's, an, that's an excellent point because in my case, even though I've never attempted suicide, I've been extremely suicidal. So there was a point after I recovered when I was walking around thinking, you know, I didn't do it this time, but maybe next time it was a almost an obsessive fear. <clears throat> and what I finally learned or what I finally adopted was the AA Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time idea, which is do not go out into the future and project what's going to happen. Take a deep breath, focus on what's in front of you and how you're going to make it through the day. And that's all that you need to worry about. And don't worry about some sort of relapse down the line or some sort of, you know, a suicide attempt down the line. But just focus on the here and now. Yeah, living in fear about a relapse can really be um, detrimental to your mental health and to your uh, peace of mind. Douglas says we need to be able to identify and recognize our unique triggers and be on the lookout for symptoms of depression and anxiety when they get activated. He breaks it down into three stages. First are the early warning signs. Those are subtle changes in thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Yeah, I learned that from my friends in AA, you know, that that, um, recovering means I'm always in the process of recovering. These people were having to have their lifestyle be their recovery. And so I realized that people with depression, bipolar disorder, any kind of mental illness have to do the same thing. Douglas's recovery includes keeping a close eye on a very common trigger. Poor sleep hygiene is definitely going to be a trigger. For me, it's the canary in the coal mine. When my sleep starts to go south and I wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep and get anxious, I know that I have to be on the lookout. As a matter of fact, all four of my so-called nervous breakdowns were started by insomnia. So Hmm. for me, that's something that I, I really need to pay attention to. Since these early warning signs can be subtle and go unnoticed if we're not paying close attention, Douglas recommends keeping a daily mood diary to help track them. Every day before I go to bed on a 1 to 10 scale, I rate how my mood was during the day and how much anxiety I had. And it's just, I find that by charting things and logging things, it gives you a sense of control over them. And also you get to see if, you know, if my mood is going from a six, five, six out of a 10 to a two or three over a period of weeks, you know you're kind of in a slide. It sounds very, very simple and something that's almost self-evident, but the process of writing down your mood or keeping track of things in a journaling, I think is very, very helpful in, in a way of uh, doing self-inventory and examining how you're doing. Yeah, and I'd imagine that that would be a very valuable document to present to your doctor, therapist, psychiatrist, or whoever you're going to see to sort of document how you're feeling because they always ask, when did the symptoms start? And we always say, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago because it's kind of hard to know for sure. So I think having it documented would be really helpful for that as well. Yeah, especially since depression can sneak up on you and it can come very, very subtly. So if you look back, oh, my mood starts, you know, on, on October 10th, I noticed my mood starts to go get below the 5 out of 10 scale, maybe that's when I start to kind of very gradually start to feel not not myself. So when you see those numbers slipping, exercise self-care. The things you know that keep you out of the weeds. Here's the thing. When I was in my, my worst episode and medication didn't work for me, I had to figure out things that would help improve my mood only if, you know, temporarily because it was like coming up from air. Like when yes. you're horribly depressed and suicidally depressed, you're like floundering around in water trying not, you know, 
to, to drown, and you're looking for lifelines and things, you know, to grasp. And so, uh, so one of the things I, I did, which of course is now scientifically proven, was I started to, you know, exercise, you know, work on getting my my endorphins going in my brain. Of course, social support is so important. So whenever I felt down, I called somebody else. You know, on and on, uh, all these different things that you can do. That one of them by himself might not make a difference, but if you combine five or six or ten different coping strategies or self-care activities, it can definitely, you know, keep your mood at a certain level. It's just sort of like you know, getting enough sleep and eating well if you don't want to get a cold. If, despite your best efforts, your symptoms worsen and start to interfere with your normal ways of functioning, you're now in what Douglas calls stage two, the beginning of crisis when things are breaking down. There's, you know, there's denial and addiction. I guess there could be denial and, and depressive breakdowns. So you're thinking, no, this can't be happening again. So I think normally there's a there's a, a point in which you don't really want to face it. But at some point, you know, when your your moods are at two or three out of ten, when you're when you're waking up three or four times a night, can't get to sleep, when you're just having really bad thoughts, you're starting to withdraw from people. You have to say, okay, things are breaking down. So. You know, the first thing I tell people is, well, call your therapist, call your counselor, call your prescriber, and then um, hopefully you have go-to people that you can really tell them, hey, I'm having a hard time here. I just need to, you know, let you need to know that, and I just want you to be available if, uh, you know, if things start to get worse. When the symptoms of stage two have not been successfully resolved, you risk moving to stage three, where Douglas says you're not preventing relapse anymore. When you're in a really bad depression, you never think it's going to end. It doesn't matter how many people tell you it will. It doesn't matter the evidence that's presented. Has that been your experience, that you feel like it's forever? Yep. Yeah, something must happen in the brain in some way. I don't know if you could look at brain circuitry or, you know, kind of ask a neuroscience to really identify what is truly going on biochemically, but whatever it is, the state of consciousness it produces is one of hopelessness and despair. And that, to me, is the biggest warning sign of, you know, potential self-harm coming down the pike. It's a horrible thing to feel that, you know, you're in here forever. It's it's agonizing. It's the worst kind of pain I've ever felt. It's just, you know, a horrendous state to have to experience. And, and, and therefore, the, the words, this too shall pass, are a very good antidote to that, assuming that a person can really, you know, believe that. Yeah. And as you said, it's... Difficult, if not impossible, to believe when you're in it. Yeah, you know, I, I remember I used to argue with people. I mean, this minister who basically told me I was going to write another book, and I, I laughed at him. I said, part of the reason I'm depressed, part of the reason I'm having this breakdown is because I'm I'm out of juice. I've dried up. There's no hope that I'll ever have another creative thought, and how dare you tell me that I'm going to do this? And, and you know, of course, sure enough, a year, a year later, I was writing the book when going through Hell Don't Stop after I came out of it, but while I was in it, I, I was actually insulted that people would dare to tell me that I was going to come out of it. That's how stuck I was in my, in my perception, which it really just shows you how, uh, you know, don't believe what your mind is telling you, you know, uh, Absolutely. It, it can give you wrong information. But we've been trained to trust it. So it's a tricky one. It's a very, very tricky one. It's a devious yeah, well, illness. I just... When, when, you, when you're depressed, if you've gone through a number of episodes like I have, you after a while you get, no, trust the other people. Because as, as, as much as I think that my reality is true, <clears throat> past experience, looking back, tells me... It isn't true. So therefore, this time around, but even then, even then when you know intellectually or rationally that you should believe 
in there, right. you know, vision that you're going to get better still on some gut emotional level because of the way your brain is dysregulated, you still feel that you're not going to get, come out of this and there's still that sense of hopelessness. So it's so important to, to first try to prevent it and then if you're in it, then try to do everything you can to get better. One of those things is being kind to yourself, holding yourself responsible only for the things you can control. You know, you're, you're more vulnerable than the average person. And, and so if you have a relapse, you know, you did the best you could. M- maybe you came into another situation like myself where there was a loss. and this is It happens, and you're back in the dark house, and you just have to go ahead and, what did the Buddha say, seven times fall, eight times get up, so you just have to pick yourself exactly. up and get out. But it's, there's no blame here. Unless, of course, you're just doing everything you, that you shouldn't be doing. You're starting to drink too much. In other words, if your self-care is, is, is broken down, you don't care, then you're going to have relapse. But if you're doing what you can, the best you can, and you still fall into the pit again, there's no blame. There's no shame. It's just the nature of the, the illness, the nature of the beast. So this is what, you know, what occurs. So we've got to find that balance that allows us to enjoy the light times, but be prepared for what could be inevitable storms. It's kind of like brushing your teeth on a regular basis to prevent cavities. I mean, you, you, you do the preventive things and it becomes part of your routine. And at the same time, you live your life. But for people who have a predisposition, either genetically, biologically, or in terms of environmental trauma, this is something that, you know, is just going to be with you and you have to use the tools to, to keep yourself on. If it doesn't work out, you know, you're not to blame. Yeah, that ability to sort of check in and even even subtly check in and realize the thoughts that you're having, the feelings you're having, your energy level, like he says, your sleep, are you eating, are you making good food choices, are you staying hydrated? I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. things on that, like, to-do list. It kind of reminds me of when a baby's crying, you know, like, are they wet? You know, are they hungry? <laughs> are they tired? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I have to do that for myself. For my like, brain. Am I drinking water? Am I sleeping? Am that, I talking to my sister a lot? <laughs> the Daily Mood Diary, I think, would be such an awesome uh, tool, and I think that You know, the way I would do it is more likely just putting an actual number on the date on my calendar. I still use a paper calendar. And, uh, you know, again, if you start seeing, oh, yeah, this has been a week now that um, which I'll be very honest and say, and you know this already, I did. And and this interview, you know, I I like hearing from people how the interviews, um, how the episodes have have, uh, impacted them, educated them, maybe challenged them. Um, and this one did me. When I was doing this interview with Douglas, I was definitely on the slide. You know, I don't know which of the stages with him, somewhere one or two. Um, I had not yet gone into an actual episode, but I could tell, you know, something was coming. You can hear the, you know, the train whistle. Um, and when he said, if your self-care is broken down, you're going to relapse. Like if you're, if you're not doing the things you know work. And it was just the kick I needed because I was like, exactly. oh, I'm not. I'm absolutely not. So told you, did some socializing this week, even though I'm, I'm not terribly social. I started to see a new therapist. And as you say, started making better choices for myself with regarding exercise and getting outside. But you did it so quickly, Terry. I, I did mean, do it, was it. Within 12 hours, you were like back to yourself again. And I, I was like, ooh, right? that is such good knowing right? knowledge. You but know? it was, uh, you know, 10 days maybe of, of the slide. So I, I was, didn't it do it um, very quickly. I didn't start very quickly, but I did respond quickly. So that's just a good 
I don't know what, real-life example that these things mm-hmm. can work. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I do feel better. You know, I also just made darn sure to be taking my meds at the same time every day and, and not missing one, which I think I had. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, I, I'm grateful to Douglas for sharing uh, that little kick in the fanny for me and and his uh, his research and, and his uh, information, which we will be linking to the article. So you can print it if you want. Yeah, it was exactly what you needed to hear, and I appreciated it, too. Thank you, Douglas. And there's a little uh, play on the word responsible that I really like, and it's response-able, so being able to respond. Hmm. You know, that requires a little bit of of uh, self-witnessing and self-reflection and then action, but I love that, response-able, responsible. Nice. Thank you. I love you, and I'm so glad you're back, Bugalug. Thanks, son. We'll be <laughs> Bugalug. Oh my gosh, we'll be back next week. Great. Now they know that. <laughs> <laughs> Therese Marie. Okay. 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 Bye. <laughs> <laughs> We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.